From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Besides being subject to legal action, mothers who abandon their children generally hold a special place of villainy in the court of public opinion. Witness the recent condemnation after Diana Elliott left her developmentally challenged 14-year-old son at an Atlanta hospital. Well, not everybody jumped on the bandwagon of rage. Some on social media expressed sympathy for a single mother of four caring for a child with special needs. Two dozen women showed up at her first hearing to ask the court for mercy. GPB digital producer Jade Abdul-Malik followed up on the story of complete strangers showing up to support an overwhelmed mother. And she's here with more on the story. Jade, great to have you with us. Thank you. So you research and you post a number of stories for GPB News. You really dug into this one. Why? So two summers ago, I took a leap of faith and I decided to volunteer at a summer camp for people with special needs in Cupertino, California. And I was put in the forefront of advocating for individuals that a lot of us don't usually think about on a daily basis. So I'm working with people with Down syndrome, working with people with autism, working with people with, you know, a lot of severe mental delays. And so I knew that this is something that's important to not just this population, but to everyone around us, because people with special needs and challenges like that affect us in ways that we can't even imagine. And I imagine a lot of demands for their needs. Exactly. So what did you learn about Diana Elliott, the woman at the center of the story? Diana Elliott is a 37-year-old mother from Atlanta with four children, one of them having Down syndrome, and that's the one that she left at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta on December 4th. Mm -hmm. She did what she thought was best for her child at the time and left him there So because she was so overwhelmed at the time. And that's what she told police. I was just too overwhelmed. Yes, that's what she told the police that she was just too overwhelmed and she doesn't have a criminal record. So she took this option to seek some sort of respite or some sort of break to kind of scramble together to take care of her children. Now, I understand that when she was arrested, she was taking care of her other kids at a hotel in Atlanta. So She was living in a hotel, which has to have some hardship behind it. Exactly. I mean, we're talking about a single mother here that, you know, just kind of paint the picture of a single mother with four children living in a hotel room. That shows, you know, that there is some sort of disparity and some sort of need not being met or satisfied at the time. And so, you know, we just have to contextualize the story a little bit here and paint the picture of who this mother is. So what was she charged with? Diana Elliott was charged with a felony child cruelty. And so that, because it's a felony charge, I mean, it's pretty rare to have a signature bond, but... Mm -hmm. Tell us what the signature bond is. A signature bond, it requires a defendant to sign saying that they're going to come, they they promise to come back for their court hearing. Mm -hmm. So in this case, Diana had to promise to appear in court for her next hearing. And if she doesn't show up, then she has to pay $10,000. Okay, so that's unlike someone putting up money for bail. Exactly. She would have to pay it if Mm -hmm. she doesn't show up. So Signature Bond actually becomes part of this story. But what happened to the other kids, the three children? So Elliot's children, including Sheldon, is in custody with a division of family and child services at at this moment. So this quickly became a much bigger community story. First of all, it's surprising to me that people were weighing in online and saying, okay, you know, some were saying like, you shouldn't have children if you can't take care of them, that kind of thing that we've heard before in these kind of cases. But a number of people saying, stop judging this woman. She's just overwhelmed. <laughs> so people showed up for her. And what, what did that support look like? For one, 
Diana Elliott's lawyer, Brian, Brian Gerard, came from Macon, Georgia, and took on her case pro bono. He has three adopted children with Down syndrome. So just right there, at, at, from a legal standpoint, we have support. Well, there's a bigger question here. I mean, although the responsibility for child care does not, of course, rest exclusively with mothers, there are far more men who give up custodial care. Is the twist in this story that people are coming to her aid, does that reflect, do you think, a shift in the way society at large considers this responsibility? You know, in my opinion, I do think so. I think in this case, you see a single mother who is extremely overwhelmed with taking care of a child with special needs. That is an emotional, physical, financial, and mental toll on a person. I mean, when you have a child that has outbursts in class, is nonverbal, has problems eating, has behaviors that deregulate the the function of a household, that takes out time and resources. And we see this mother do the best that she can and take her child with special needs to Great Memorial Hospital because when we think of hospitals, we think this is where people get help. This is where people get better. And to see her being arrested, it just kind of brings up this conversation of how if someone is trying to get help for themselves and their family and they get arrested and criminalized for it, how is that going to help tailor the conversation, improve the conversation about how we can better support women and children with special needs. Is that what you heard from the other women that you spoke to, that kind of emotional, financial, uh, um, even even mental health kind of dent in households? What did you hear? For sure. I mean, we've, the woman that I talked to spoke about how, you know, sometimes they feel ostracized, whether friends don't invite them to dinners or events anymore, or they kind of feel isolated because they're down to one income and they are the their sole provider for that child and they're trying to scrape up as much help as they can. We have people that are at their wit's end that cry about this this type of situation and they're trying to pull in as many resources as they can to better fit their family. I mean, we... When state-mandated services fall short, that's when community support helps out the most. When people like Stacey Georges, the CEO of the Special Re- Special Needs Respite Program, comes in and creates a nonprofit or, you know, other people create nonprofits to kind of serve as a middleman between the state and the citizen to help kind of bridge that gap between resources and things like that. And the people that showed up for Elliot in the courtroom included women that have children with special needs, like Carla Griffin and Elisa Armstrong Gibbs. So those are two of the women that you spoke with. Here's a clip one of, from one, Carla Griffin, one of the mothers who you spoke to after the incident, who came and supported Diana Elliott. I did the same thing she did some years ago. I did. I abandoned my son in a hospital for seven months. There's a wait list that is miles long, and a parent runs out of strategy. What is she talking about, the wait list? So Georgia has two uh, program waivers. One is called the Comprehensive Support Waiver Program and the New Options Waiver Program. What those are, they supply services to individuals with special needs and help with their living situation. But the thing with that is these programs are severely underfunded and people that apply are put on wait lists that could, I mean, they can be on these wait lists for 
at least a decade. So that, you know, if the only time that someone can be taken off of this wait list or moved up is if someone moves away or passes away, things like that. So there's no sense of relief coming. None. Which I imagine is really tough psychologically. I'm speaking with GPB digital producer Jade Abdul-Malik, discussing some of her reporting on an Atlanta story that's gained a lot of extensive coverage and support throughout the state and the United States. Last month, a mother was arrested on charges of child cruelty after leaving her 14-year-old son at Grady Hospital. I imagine a hospital or a fire station would be safe places for those in need in similar cases, as Carla, the woman that you spoke to, mentioned. But... Georgia does have what is called a safe haven law. Does that apply in cases like this? No, the safe haven law doesn't apply in this case. What the safe haven law provides is it allows mothers to surrender their newborns within 30 days of birth with no ID required. Now, this law was set into place about two decades ago, but only two years ago, our mothers allowed to drop babies off at any fire station, police station, or hospital. Babies, so it's only up to a certain age of child. Exactly, within 30 days of birth. So in this case, Sheldon would not be included in this law. So what is DFCS saying about this? I mean, this really has gotten a lot of attention throughout the country. So uh, DFCS hasn't, I haven't received a statement from them at all, but I mean, Sheldon and the three other children that Diana has are in their custody. So there we have to wait on Diana's next court hearing and to see if she can rehabilitate herself enough to maintain housing and other needs to support her children again and reunite with them. So how about the criticisms that come up for people like Diana, I'm wondering if the women that you spoke to had answers for that. You know, if you feel overwhelmed by your kids, why did you have so many? You know, those kind of judgments often come up. We definitely have to change the conversation about how we react to people with special needs. They're human just like us. When we eventually, a, a lot of us will come into terms with some sort of disability, whether you break a leg temporarily or you have a traumatic brain injury. These conversations must be normalized because there shouldn't be a need for someone to be arrested for getting the help that they need, especially if he if she provided him the best care that she could at the time. That should be more important than nitpicking how she handled the situation. At the end of the day, people need help when they need help. And the best thing that you can do is to lend an ear, lend a hand, and hold someone through and through the journey. Diana Elliott did not have any kind of criminal record. Did she have a record with DFCS of reaching out for services? Do you know? Um, as far as I know, Diana did not have any record with uh, DFCS. Well, Jade, I'm thinking for you, it's this a Pretty emotional story. You heard some gripping stories from people who are dealing with similar kind of troubles. And it's a lot to cover as a journalist, and especially for someone like you who had worked with children with developmental disabilities. What was your biggest takeaway from this experience? So I've heard when because I worked at a summer camp that deals with this type of population, I was all too familiar with the stories of these mothers that are just kind of, you know, are at their wit's end. They they just kind of fall to their knees. It's like, I just need two hours to breathe. 
or I just need to visit my family or I need to get some work done. I just need to not have to worry about cleaning the house for a week. And this type of conversation and this type of environment and culture even, it's just so imperative that when someone needs help, we give them a platform to receive that help in any way that we can. And so to hear these stories about women that have been so emotionally exhausted and financially exhausted, it hurts. And it's it can be hard to detach your emotions from a story. But the way that I work through it is to find women that feel so impassioned by it and to feel so, you know, encaptured by these stories or have lived through these experiences to tell that story so that other people like Diana do not feel alone and know that they can get help that they need. Jade Abdul-Malik, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. You can read Jade's follow-up to the Diana Elliott case at gpbnews.org. Coming up. They had so little and they gave so much. It was it was humbling to, to see what they wanted to give us of themselves. And it demanded the same from us. High school sports teams can cover a lot of miles. Few as life-changing as a high school girls volleyball team from Metro Atlanta who traveled to Botswana. I'm Virginia Prescott. Hear about that journey and stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. For students, sports yield a variety of skills and lessons beyond the field or court. There's teamwork, perseverance, and confidence. While sports in Georgia are dominated by football, baseball, basketball, and soccer, another sport is seeing major growth. Volleyball, now the number one sport played by high school girls in America. One Georgia volleyball club aims to leverage the popular sport to bridge cultural divides. The athletes and coaches from the A5 Volleyball Club in Alpharetta spent Thanksgiving break traveling to Africa, where they shared their love for volleyball with young kids living in rural Botswana. Joining me now are two of the club's top players, high school senior Sasha Ratliff. Hello, Sasha. Hi. And Savannah Bray. Hi. How are you? Good. We're also joined by Connor Lounsbury, coach at A5 and the videographer for the trip. Connor, hello. How's it going? It's just great. I'm glad to have you all here. And one of the founders of the A5 Club, Bob Westbrook, joins us as well. Bob, really great to have you. Uh, we're thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, it is such an interesting thing. I mean, we've heard of great sports, travel teams, going to interesting places. But Botswana, this is a really interesting decision. I know you've made overseas club trips before. What made Botswana different from past trips, Bob? Uh, well, we really felt compelled to uh, to do new things, to explore new areas. And one of the attractive things about this trip was we saw where we get to be of service. And it's important, we think, that we give back to the community. And uh, one of the extraordinary things was not only the way the athletes themselves responded or the young people from Botswana, but our athletes. It was really profound. 
and uh, very impactful. I want to know from Sasha and Savannah, who, who wants to start? What was your initial reaction when you heard you were going to Botswana? Well, first I was like, that's different because we've always gone to very populated places and just always like a lot of activity and like it's not a tourist area that you usually go to. Right, you go to Italy, Japan, Spain, I think some of the things I read. Yes, and the, I think this trip was different because we'd always, we went to Japan and Italy like to play volleyball and to walk around and do like touristy things. But I think with Africa, we went there to play volleyball and to do community service. It was probably, it was my favorite trip out of all the ones I've been on. How about for you, Savannah? What was your initial thought when you found out you were going to Botswana? Um, I was glad because I've seen many people go to Africa for like mission trips and stuff. And I thought it was very cool for us to be able to go to play volleyball, but also give back to the community. I agree with Sasha. This was my favorite trip out of the ones I've been to. What made it different? Um, more like the community service part and being able to make an impact on the kids' lives and as well as the Botswana national team's lives. And just knowing that like s- people in the U.S. also like care about them and want to see them strive in their um, both volleyball career. Uh, you're the coach, Connor, but also the media specialist who documented this trip. Let's hear from a video that you took at the volleyball clinic. So I, I coach a team at the club, but on the trip, I only do the video and photography and stuff. So for me, it was more so just trying to make it feel like everyone back home was basically with us. So like I wanted to bring their parents along, and I wanted to bring everybody else from the club along. So it was waking up early mornings, having breakfast, and then either playing a game or going to a practice or a clinic. And then some days we had safaris and got to do some really cool things like that. But yeah, there was a ton on that. There, it, there was... I can't even think of it all. Explain to me, uh, Savannah said something about the Botswana national team. So you're playing with a national volleyball team from Botswana and what, schools, workshops, that kind of thing? Uh, yes. Uh, we toured the country with the Botswana national team. We actually rode on the bus together. And, um, and so that was, uh, that was an interesting uh, event as well because we, we, we weren't tourists. We, were, we had an authentic experience. We were with the Botswana community. Now, later in the trip, we did see some tourists, and there's nothing wrong with that. We love being tourists. Uh, that said, uh, this was so different and so unique. It was such an extraordinary thing. Uh, you know, it was interesting to me to hear you two say it was your favorite trip because I know that you're experienced, not only with us, but you've traveled more than a little. And and uh, that was my our general perception was it for all of us, it it was Jing Hao who played on the Chinese national team, coached with coached with, with us, has been all over the world, played all over the world, said it was his favorite trip. Hmm. He had never been to Africa. So that aspect of real connection, it sounds like, rather it, than it, just passing it, through. It was. I mean, uh, I, there were so many iconic moments, one of which was more of a social observation was they had so little and they gave so much. It was It was humbling. To, to see what they wanted to give us of themselves. And it demanded the same from us. I'd love to hear that from you all. We, when you're pulling up on this bus in these little villages, what, what, was your, what are some of your first impressions? 
Um, just to see like the how different they are compared to us. Like one of the things I noticed is like some of them didn't have shoes, and then like some of us in the U.S. like take for granted like just a little pair of shoes, but they have like the same shoe for like volleyball and for like their school play. So that was one of the biggest differences for me. Mm-hmm. What ages of kids were you with for the most part? Um, I say from like five to twelve. All right. Mm-hmm. So had any of them ever played volleyball before? Probably not. No. <laughs> it was. No, definitely not. So what was it like to think, okay, this is how the game goes? Honestly, it was like just seeing how happy everybody was when we were just doing something so small, which is just teaching them volleyball and then giving some volleyballs to the school and seeing that despite everything that they've been going through, they are just happy to be there. So, yeah. So it's weird. It's sort of like your world apart in some ways, right? Uh, you have so many material advantages, different cultural perspectives than all of them. How did you communicate with them? When I was with my group, we tried to like learn each other's names. So like there were some that could speak English and some that couldn't. So we like reached out to the ones that could speak English and try to like get them to understand what we were saying and vice versa. There was this girl named Tata, and she was like she knew how to she spoke to us but not in the way i think she thought she had to speak to us there wasn't you could tell she was just trying really hard to communicate with us like she spoke really good english but i think she had an idea in her head what americans were like and that's <laughs> why she would just certain things she would say like oh my goodness above all. It, no, I mean, but, um, I'd, I'd be interested because I think that's interesting, the idea that you all are walking in there. You're you're carrying something, right? You're carrying that you're Americans, you know, you're coming in on this bus. So there's a perception of difference. And I'm, that's what I'm wondering about, how you, how you broke down that difference. Well, the girl Tata, she she said I was sitting with her on the bus. She said, oh, do you ever wish you were black? <laughs> and you are an African, a yes, young I'm woman African of color. American, yes. And then I said, I am. And then she said, no, you're not. I was like, oh, okay. I guess I'm not then. Just because like, I'm lighter skinned. So, of course, it's going to be different from what they're used to. But then I was like, oh, well, in America, I'm an African-American. I'm a woman of color. But in Africa, I guess it's different. Well, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. My guests are Savannah Bray, Sasha Ratliff. They are both players in the A5 Volleyball Club, founded in part by Bob Westbrook. Connor Lonsbury is also with us. He is a coach for the A5 Volleyball Club. It's based in Alpharetta. They're talking about a trip to Botswana, where they taught volleyball to kids from rural villages and also worked with the national volleyball team of Botswana. Volleyball first invented, this is 1895, in Massachusetts, later added to the Olympics, or not until 1964. Right. So now it's the number one sport played by high school girls in America. What is it, what is it about volleyball that made it so popular with girls? Well, I can't say it entirely, but my perception about that is that um, it, it, it contains all the elements. Uh, women are very cooperative, and so for young women playing volleyball, they have their own side of the court. They have uh, their own rituals. They have a very defined team. Um, and uh, I think it speaks very profoundly to young women athletes uh, at that level. It's a very difficult game to become good at. Uh, in volleyball, you have to be able to serve the ball over the net, which uh, takes time. So the, the athletes that participate in it truly get a sense of accomplishment in acquiring these very difficult skills. Now, these are two very gifted athletes, yet... 
the common thread that binds them is the hard work they put in to become the players they are athletes. I understand that the club now plans to partner with the Botswana Volleyball Federation. Now, what would that partnership actually mean? Well, we think that what that means is we can provide the goods, uh, knee pads, balls, uh, net systems. Um, in some cases, we, we'd love to bring their coaches over. We don't know that we can do that, but it's one of the things that now, that exchange would be of value to all of us. There, they were the, the coaching staff, and we were around most of the Botswana Federation high-level officials, and uh, and and their their desire to interact with us and to seek our aid, but also offer what they had to offer was uh, very compelling and very powerful. Um, we think that um, we think we can be successful with this, and we're going to be committed to it to to try to offer what we can offer uh, in in terms of goods and services to to help them achieve their goals. Connor, I wonder, you watching all of this with the, through the camera lens, partially, any particular sights of these girls working with the people in Botswana that comes across to you um, or stayed with you? Yeah, I'll never forget the court we were playing on on the first clinic was a big dirt yard with lines drawn with a stick in the sand and a net that was hanging up on two cement poles. And um, we probably had close to 200 kids there, and 200 kids with 16 girls. The math doesn't really work out there to teach them volleyball. So um, they would put maybe one girl with a group of about five kids, and they'd spread out, and they'd just start tossing the ball and asking them what their name is. It took maybe two minutes for the chemistry just to start happening. It, it, was, un it was unbelievable. So what sticks in your mind about this trip, I wonder, for you, Sasha, Savannah? Or, or would you like to do more of this kind of thing? I would like to do more trips that are like um, community based and giving back and just like seeing them like how happy they were that like somebody else would like come to them and want to be willing to like teach them how to play and also like give them like say balls and stuff and I just think that's like so amazing. I would love to do another experience like that. How about as far as your, you as a group of these 16 young women who went on this trip, what was it like like when you're coming home? What did you learn from each other? Um, I say a lot of us got more comfortable with each other, so we got to see like the silly sides of us, and also um, not being able to play with um, all of these girls all the time. Also, seeing their competitive side—that was pretty amazing. I'd like to add this: yes. that it's really cool to go back to the gym the first couple of times we're back in the gym, and to see them recognize each other bound by this profound experience that we had together and that they know each other in a way that they didn't know before. And, uh, and then that, you know, that gradually fades a little bit as we get it back into the swing of things. But there's no question when they walk in that gym and they look, make eye contact after having made these trips, but this trip in particular, they knew they had been somewhere and done something very unique and very special. And they in themselves were those people as well. So, and the first time I, I worked in Africa a little bit, and the first radio stations that I went to, you know, these rural places, and they'd maybe have an old CD player hooked up to a microphone, maybe another microphone. Mm -hmm. They were doing so much with so little. And I came back thinking about, you know, every radio station I've ever worked at, they have a big junk room with old stuff sitting there that they never touch. Yeah. And that we have so much. I just don't know if that struck you when, when you came back. Yes, um, more like with the clothes and then the shoes 
And also, like, another thing that we gave um, were, like, sports bras from Bring It USA. And they really appreciate it when we gave them because, like, not all of them have, like, sports bras when they're young. But when they get older, they do. But it's not, like, how we do here in the USA. Yeah, I can imagine if you don't have shoes, sports bras are probably not on your major priority list. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a gentleman at the last market. We didn't shop much, which was actually refreshing, even though we want to bring home souvenirs. But we got to go uh, the last day to a market in uh, Zimbabwe and um, in Victoria Falls. And there was a gentleman there named Trust who uh, wanted to buy my shoes. And uh, I said, well, I'll be back tomorrow. And um, I'm going to give them away anyway, so I'll bring them to you. And uh, so I brought him the shoes. He found me at 801. I was there at 8. <laughs> and uh, uh, he took his ragged shoes he had off his feet, put those on, and uh, walked off into the into, to his marketplace. It was so profound. I know for him, I don't know what it was. I know what it was for me. Well, Bob, you started this program a long time ago, or it's grown tremendously. Is that notion of community service, where, where does that fall into your thinking about this? And, and it sounds like it's brought so much meaning to these young women. Well, I think that there are two questions one has to ask oneself. What is it that I love and how can I be of service? So in volleyball, we love this game. That's a common thread by everybody sitting at this table and a thousand girls that are in our club. And uh, so naturally, we'd love to use volleyball to be of service because in the long run, right, it's a tool with which we examine the truth in our life. And, and so uh, it teaches us so much about ourselves, about what we can do. And I guess if we could ask one thing of our children would be that our hope for one thing from our children is that uh, they make a difference in the world. And uh, I think that being of service helps us teach, whether you're doing it on a large scale or whether you're doing it next door or whether you have the privilege to do it in Botswana on, on a, an amazing journey. I want to thank you all so much, Savannah Bray, Sasha Ratliff, Connor Lounsbury, and Bob Westbrook, some of the athletes and coaches from the A5 Volleyball Club. You can find videos and pictures from their spectacular trip. We've got links at our website, gpbnews.org. Thank you all so much for oh, being thank here. You so thank, much. You. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. There's more on Second Thought coming up right after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott. back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The blues is the taproot that seeded jazz, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, and hip-hop. While the fortunes of blues musicians faded along with its popularity, their devotion to this original American art form has not. Tim Duffy founded the Music Maker Relief Foundation 25 years ago to preserve the music of the South by supporting those who make the blues and other forms of traditional music. Chuck Reese, host of the Bitter Southerner podcast, traveled to North Carolina to meet Tim and learn about the artists he works with. 
And I went to visit Tim at his foundation's office in Hillsboro, North Carolina. And the next day, we loaded up and drove east to a little town called Farmville to see four women who make the Sunday morning version of our nation's native music. Now that sound lifting you up belongs to the glorifying Vines sisters. Alice Vines, Audrey Vines, Maddie Vines Harper, and Dorothy Vines Daniels. Dorothy describes the Vine Sisters' music this way. I would say we sing the hard rock gospel. <laughs> the hard rock you know gospel. Know what I said? Come on. We sang it right hard, and we won't tear it all to pieces. In a song, we don't want to leave out no, no kind of words or no kind of feelings. It's just a good, nice, good time. I call on the Lord. I know He's come. Can I get one Can I get one As I sat among the sisters that day, just swallowed up in their joyful noise, I learned that Dorothy had suffered a stroke right after they got back from performing in Europe the year before. And they had been working for a while to help Dorothy relearn her parts in their song. And that very day, in the song you're hearing right now, Dorothy hit that lead line perfectly for the very first time since her stroke. Her sisters called it a miracle. Their world got a whole lot wider after their brother, Freeman Vines, met Tim Duffy. I could not do what uh, Tim over there do. I couldn't do it. But it, it had to be in you to do these things, in your heart. Tim always had a deep passion for music, and when he was in his teens, he started sitting in on the Mississippi folklorist Bill Ferris's classes on the blues at Yale University. And when Tim's passion turned into college studies, it took him across the ocean. He enrolled in Friends World College, which is now part of Long Island University, but it was founded by a group of Quakers who believed that students should be in the parts of the world they wanted to study. And that led Tim to Mombasa, Kenya, where he was studying ethno-linguistics, a field that focuses on the communication between a culture and how its people talk. You know, I was living in a very insular um, Muslim neighborhood in Mombasa, and uh, I was just found my place. I was going to be a Kenyan. But then Tim's father back in Connecticut passed away. So Tim came home to New Haven with several months of work remaining on his degree, and that's when he began dating Denise, who worked in the apparel business. And when Tim returned to Mombasa to finish his degree, Denise went with him. 
we went and lived on a rooftop in Mombasa for seven months. Wow. And then... Then we came home. Did you move back as soon as you finished your degree? So we, yeah, we, yeah. we had, didn't have any more money. Yeah. <laughs> we had to go home. Yeah. So, you know, we had, so, and at that point, it was like, okay, now what do we want to do? Neither one of us wanted to be in New Haven. Tim had loved the music in North Carolina. He wasn't really sure what was next for him. And I said, you know, you have all these connections in North Carolina, and I think I can get work there. Let's go to North Carolina. After they got settled, Tim eventually enrolled at the University of North Carolina to study folklore. And that's where he first heard about a mysterious musician named Guitar Gabriel. And he began a month-long search to find him. He was young. He was 68, but an old 68. Lived by his wits since he was probably four years old, you know. And... um but he is a master of words, and um, he's one of these guys who just talked. And when he got talking, it would go for days, and everything was pure poetry. It's like meeting Homer or something. Once Tim met Gabe, the wheels of the Music Maker Relief Foundation began turning in his head. Gabe had fallen on hard times, but he still continued to perform at unlicensed drink houses in black neighborhoods. He was living in, a, worst in, in the worst project. His wife was suffering from deep alcoholism. Um, he had got beaten up the year before I met him. Coming back from a gig, some gangsters beat him with a two by four and broke his femur and his legs up. And some really nice social worker in town, I got to meet her, got him on SSI. So he had a little check of like $450 a month. Now, Tim was a blues player himself, and he was obsessed with picking up the different blues styles of guitar playing that had sprung up over the decades around the South. So when Gabe and Tim began playing music together, they started traveling around doing a few small gigs and selling cassette tapes of their song. And here's a little bit of them performing in 1992 in Tim and Denise's kitchen. After a couple of years of performing together, suddenly Guitar Gabe and Tim Duffy found themselves on the stages of places like Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall, big venues in Europe. And those big venue gigs put Tim within contact of big players in the music business. See, meeting Gabe and, and all these other elderly musicians had helped him see that there was so much talent out there among artists who weren't ever given the chance to be financially successful. Here's Denise Duffy. The record companies, you know, these artists are not attractive to them because, you know, they're too old to climb in a van and hump the road 28 nights a month sleeping on people's couches. And so the whole, you know, the industry is just not functioning for them. The Duffies wanted to change that. And they got some help from a fellow named Mark Levinson. Levinson is held in high reverence by 
audio nerds who have $12,000 to drop on a turntable. Like, if you buy a new Lexus automobile today, your top-tier audio option is a system designed by Mark Levinson. But when the Duffies met him in 1994, he planted the idea of the Music Maker Relief Foundation in their heads. He was the one that said, you know, you, you we can try and get, you know, we're going to try and get these guys real record contracts, real gigs, but in the meantime, everyone's starving. You know, why don't you start a nonprofit that can help buy people's shoes and, and pay the light bill until you can get them enough gigs to keep them going? From there, the Duffies were able to get more support from wealthy donors. But their biggest breakthrough came not from one particular wealthy donor, but from a tobacco company, from Winston Cigarettes, which is the company that gave Guitar Gabriel's hometown its name, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Winston tastes good like a cigarette shoe. Turns out that the Winston brand had bought a 20-page ad in the upcoming 30th anniversary edition of Rolling Stone magazine, and they needed content to fill those 20 pages. And it turned out that someone who worked at the local ad agency that handled the Winston account was also volunteering at the Music Maker Relief Foundation. This guy who works at the agency is like, oh, I, I volunteer for this little nonprofit. Yeah. Did you see these pictures? And whips out the pictures Tim um, had taken yeah. for our newsletter. And they're like, these fabulous photos are amazing. Wh who are these artists? And he'd start telling them the stories yeah. of these artists. And they're like, yes, this is going to be the ad campaign. It was the most imprints of any blues photos in the history of the world history. Because it was a $20 million. Well, yeah, so they first they do this Rolling Stone issue. Yeah. And they just decide they're going to be these, you know, Big photos with, you know, a cool line about like it, each artist. I play so much guitar, make your ass hurt. Right. They ain't been in the pawn shop, they ain't the blues. And, and a lot of them were quotes from the artists. They're all quotes you from, know, the from the artists. And then they just put this teeny Winston logo at the bottom. It was, you know, it was beautifully done. And so they do the first ad set, series of ads, and people are like, this is great. We're now going to put 25% of our ad budget on this music maker campaign. Yeah. And they're spending $50 million a year on yeah. ads. Right. So it's $12 million they're gonna spend on... Publicizing. On public, and they decide, well, what are we gonna talk about in these ads? They're like, we wanna go to, you know, um, you know, 50 major monthlies and 125 weeklies in all the country. How are we gonna engage with people? And they said, why don't we do a tour? We put on these incredible, four to six hour marathon shows of blues and people, it was fabulous. And, and the guys, I split all this money with the guys. So like, they were making I took money. guys from... They're making five four. grand a weekend and staying in four star hotels. They're yeah, I was making it. guys, like guys that were destitute $80,000 a year. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. Now over 25 years, Music Maker has extended that hand to more than 400 musicians. It has recorded more than 7,000 performances, commercially released about 2,500 songs. The number of grants it's extended to musicians now tops 12,000. Now, Music Maker, believe it or not, does all this work with an annual operating budget of only about a million dollars. 
but they've learned how to stretch that money to keep music and history alive for generations. We support the torch bearers so they can then take the torch and pass it on to the next generation. If we don't have their, their oral history, if we don't have their picture, every time one of these guys dies, they're gone. And that is the voice of one of the torchbearers, Precious Bryant of Waverly Hall, Georgia. She died in 2013 when she was 71 years old. But before her death, Precious saw her career flourish thanks to the Music Maker Foundation. They gave her a monthly stipend for prescription medicine, for food, for utility bills. And in addition, they produced Precious's album and helped her book and travel to shows across the U.S. and abroad. And to top it off, they even hooked her up with two guitars. She had started playing way back when she was nine years old. See, my uncle had, they had some what you call a family guitar. It was a great old big one, and I couldn't have told it. I used to just drag it around, and I kept on till I learned how to play it. My uncle bought me a little old ukulele. Along that time, they said Santa Claus coming to you. I started with that. In many ways, the blues was Precious's way of communicating. My baby don't stand no cheating. One of the folks Precious passed the torch to is a musician named Jake Xerxes Fussell. It's the same old man living at the mill. The mill turns around of its own free will. One hand in the hopper, the other in a sack. The lady step forwards as the jets fall back. Jake was born in Columbus, Georgia, and lives today in Durham, North Carolina. But he studied at Precious Bryant's feet when he was young. It's okay if music is mediated or whatever, and that's the way that you learn stuff, but learning things directly is a whole other ball game. I never had any kind of real formal teacher who would like sit me down and say, this is the way you pick this out. Precious never served that function for me or anything. <laughs> she, it was more like she would play and I'd sit there and try to keep up, you know. But in a bigger picture, like how did that affect my music? I don't it's like, uh, that's the reason I play music. Tim and Denise Duffy and their crew at Music Makers always make connections like that to ensure that when someone is ready to pass the torch, there's another one to receive it. And their foundation in many ways has become a life support system for America's native music. I call on the Lord, I know you Alice Vines of the Glorifying Vine Sisters told me that she believes Tim helps artists like her and her sisters because that's his calling. It has to be in you to do these things in your heart. And just like you, you know, to come out this far from Georgia, it had to be in your heart. God had to give you, had to give favor from Tim, then Tim had that favor with us. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Oh, you wouldn't have come. Right. And see, people don't know what favor means. You have the favor of God, but you don't know how to use it. Favor Amen. is faith. <laughs> what is faith? Believe it. Right. you got to believe in what you do. And I know you come, come to my rescue. Oh, anywhere, any place, any time. Oh, yeah. 
the joyful noise of the glorifying Vine Sisters, fueled by the Music Maker Relief Foundation. Our thanks to Chuck Reese of the Bitter Southerner podcast for bringing us that story. You can hear an extended version of the conversation and much more by subscribing to the Bitter Southerner podcast for free at gpb.org slash podcasts. You can join the conversation about anything you listen to at On Second Thought. Our Facebook group is GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message, 404-500-9457. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Mary Lynn Ryan is our executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for joining us on On Second Thought. <laughs>